Trying to organize my thoughts and ideas when it comes to Halloween takes near Herculean levels of effort. I love it all. The movies, the decorations, the feel and look of fall. It's a time when it's okay to be a horror lover. Binging on scary movies sometimes takes more explaining in June than it does in October. So when it came time to sit down and work on a Halloween-themed podcast episode, I didn't know where to begin. I still don't, which is why this episode has the potential to be all over the map. I'll try to stick to two main ideas. Why do we have Halloween, and why does it seem to make people go a little nuttier than usual? When I said I love it all, I wasn't being completely honest. I don't love it all. I don't love haunted houses. To be clear, I like houses that are haunted. It's the haunted house attractions for amusement that pop up around this time of year that I don't like. The idea and imagery of a haunted house is lovely, but having strangers grab at me or scream in my face in the dark is something I don't handle very well. I remember when I worked in radio at the classic rock station in Toledo. Every Halloween, I'd end up broadcasting live from an attraction known as the Haunted Hydro. I looked it up online and it's still going strong after 33 years. The man behind the madness is a man named Crazy Bob. I got to know Bob pretty well. He'd sit in with me during shows for interviews and pretty much gave me a lifetime pass to come by whenever I wanted, which, while I was appreciative, I didn't take advantage of the offer. But when I'd broadcast live from the Haunted Hydro, I didn't have a choice. Oftentimes, he would have me go through the attraction while live on the air. The actors inside would really amp things up at Crazy Bob's behest. What sounds and screams came out of me while I was live on the air, I can't attest to. My only goal was getting the hell out of there. The Haunted Hydro is annually one of the top haunted attractions in the Midwest. So, if you happen to be in the Toledo-Fremont area of Ohio, stop in. Tell Crazy Bob that Dave Waters from WXKR sent you. He won't remember me, and it won't get you anything, but it'll make me feel special. So is that where I got my fear of haunted houses from? No. To find that out, we have to go way back in time 30 plus years to when I was barely double digits and visiting my grandparents in Houghton Lake, Michigan. For a while, in my youth, both sets of my grandparents lived less than a mile from each other in Houghton Lake. My father's folks lived right on the lake. My mother's parents lived just down the road on a canal that fed into the lake. Every summer, I'd spend weeks up there, bouncing back and forth between their houses, drinking Shirley Temples at the local dive bar, and fishing off the dock. When driving in and out of town, I was always fascinated by the spooky mansion we'd pass on M55. It was on the property of a place called Lakeland Recreation, which also had go-karts, putt-putt, batting cages, a questionable roller coaster, and an arcade. Occasionally, I'd talk my parents into taking me to the arcade, where they'd load me up with tokens or the putt-putt course where my dad would let me win. Looming in the background of my childhood was the Haunted Mansion. I never saw a lot of people go in or come out, but I'd often hear the noises coming from within. As a kid... I didn't understand the concept of a haunted house that was open in the middle of summer. I still don't, actually. Lakeland Recreation closes at the end of September every year as the tourist season dies down. It's not even open for Halloween. So at some point in my youth, either I convinced my dad or he convinced me that we needed to try it. 
We approached the counter in the arcade, and my dad asked for two tickets to the haunted mansion. I could feel my knees weaken, but I needed to be brave and tough. The surprised look on the worker's face should have been our first clue that we should abort the mission. Uh, someone will be over in a minute, he said. We left the arcade and made our way to the neighboring mansion. Up close, it looked far more ominous than I'd made it out to be from afar. We climbed the steps and read the sign on the front door. Please wait for attendant to unlock door. Eventually, a teenager came over and unlocked the door. We walked through the turnstile and entered the mansion. Now, I don't know what I expected, but my dad assured me that we'd be just fine. I won't claim to remember every detail. Truthfully, not much of it stands out to me. A few door knocks and jump scares early on. I was scared, but we were doing it, my dad and I. We didn't know at the time, but there were levels to the mansion. We found a set of stairs that led upwards and ascended. My father kept reassuring me that it was okay. I didn't fully believe him. I'm not sure he fully believed himself. We came to an open room with five or six different doors. There were decisions to be made. I don't remember what was behind the first door we opened. A big spider, perhaps. The second door we tried, I vividly remember a naked female mannequin laying on an operating table with her inside organs on the outside. I never asked my father to explain what was happening to the poor gal. I just knew I might have been too young to see it. My dad was hesitant to open the third door, and with good reason. He opened it slowly, and from behind the door, someone or something, probably the teenaged attendant, grabbed a hold of his wrist. He freaked out. Then I freaked out. And we took off for the door with the glowing red exit sign above it. Once outside, we gathered ourselves and confidently strode down the stairs and back towards our car. We don't speak of that day very often. A Google search revealed to me that it's still there, all these years later. I'm not sure how much has changed, and I haven't been back to Houghton Lake since my grandparents moved down from there a dozen years ago. On the Lakeland Recreation website, the haunted house is described as follows. At the far end of the park. Just past the mini-golf entrance stands Count Von Strange's three-story house. It's occupied by a few spooky characters that have refused to leave the premises, even after their demise. Spend a few minutes strolling the dark hallways and see if you can make it all the way to the basement exit. There's an early exit for those who lose the nerve to continue. We recommend it for ages 8 and up. Reading that reminds me how thankful I am that my dad had the good sense to take the early exit. Had we made it to the basement, I may still be down there today, curled up in the fetal position. Let's get into the episode now, while I try to wash away that memory. We're talking Halloween, haunted houses, and crazy folks who just get more crazy around Halloween time. Episode 49, This is Halloween. In the area which is now Ireland and the United Kingdom, November 1st marked not only the new year, but the end of summer and the final harvest before wintertime. The Celts often associated winter with death. They believed that on the eve of their new year, October 31st, 
any boundaries between the worlds of the living and the dead blurred. They built massive bonfires where people burned crops and animals as sacrifices to their gods. Revelers wore costumes made from animal skulls and fur. They danced, told stories, and tried to tell each other's fortunes. They called it Samhain. Eventually, the Roman Empire took control of a majority of the Celtic territory and merged their traditions with those of the Celts. Christianity worked its way in around the year 1000, and the church wanted their own holidays, which they hoped would overshadow the pagan ones. They came up with a day to honor the dead called All Souls Day, which they celebrated on November 2nd. So now they had Samhain on October 31st, All Saints Day on November 1st, and All Souls Day on the 2nd. Since Samhain was celebrated before All Saints Day, it began to be called All Hallows' Eve, which eventually became Halloween. As the idea of Halloween slowly spread across the ocean, the day was shunned by some religions and altered by others. Many places had annual fall festivals, but not many people were celebrating Halloween. Colonial Halloween festivities featured ghost stories and tricks and treats of all kinds, but it wasn't until the second half of the 19th century, as Irish immigrants arrived, that Halloween really became widespread in America. During the 20th century, Americans did what Americans tend to do, and commercialized the holiday, turning it into the moneymaker that it is today. Gone are any religious or spiritual undertones. It's predicted by Investopedia that those who celebrate Halloween plan on spending an average of $100.45 per person. The estimated $10.6 billion in total spending is expected to break down like this. $3.6 billion for costumes, $3.1 billion for candy, $3.4 billion for decorations, and $0.6 billion for greeting cards. Money spent isn't the only thing that's been on the rise since the 1900s. There's also been an increase in death and crime associated with the holiday. Perhaps the media shines a bigger spotlight on Halloween deaths and murders because, well, it's sensational. A murder is just a murder in most cases, but a murder on Halloween might have some mysterious force behind it. In neighboring Detroit, Devil's Night became a thing as far back as the 1930s. Petty criminal behavior, minor pranks, and mild vandalism involving eggs, soap, fiery bags of dog poop, and toilet paper was as dangerous as it got. By the early 70s, arson became a hot trend. In 1984, Detroit and the surrounding suburbs saw as many as 800 fires set. The number continued to stay in the hundreds annually until Angel's Night was put into place and thousands of volunteers would take to the streets to help report crime. The term Devil's Night was so in vogue that rappers rapped about it. The 1994 film The Crow took place around it. Criminal Minds devoted an entire episode to it, and shows like American Horror Story and Scream named episodes after it. You could set fire to something anytime you want, but apparently there was something dangerous and almost intoxicating about doing it so close to Halloween. Let's now take a stroll through history and discuss some of the stranger Halloween-themed murders and events that have happened. 1926. On October 22, 1926, Harry Houdini was in Montreal and invited some McGill University students to visit him in his dressing room. He'd injured his ankle at a show some weeks earlier, 
and was resting on a couch while the group chatted. A student named J. Gordon Whitehead had heard Houdini's claims that he could resist any hard punches delivered to his abdomen. After Houdini confirmed the rumors, the student, without warning, delivered a series of forceful blows to Houdini's abdomen. With no time to prepare for the punches, Houdini was left in considerable pain. He brushed off the incident, but on his way to the next show in Detroit, he developed severe abdominal pain, cold sweats, fatigue, and a 104-degree fever. Despite warnings that he should go to the hospital, Houdini, who believed that the show must go on, took the Garrick Theater stage that evening. He made it through the show, but collapsed as the curtain closed. At a local Detroit hospital, he had his appendix removed, which was found to be ruptured and poisoning his insides. Houdini clung to life for as long as he could, but died on Halloween, with his wife and two brothers by his side. 1957 On September 30th of 1957, Time magazine ran an article of a true story that happened in Utica, Kansas. The article's headline read, Something for the Kids. For several years, parents and school officials of the little farming community of Utica, Kansas, population 300, have worried that youngsters might be injured in the boisterous yearly initiation of high school freshmen by the senior class. So, Mrs. Betty Stevens, English teacher and sponsor of this year's senior class, decided to try something different. Instead of seeing her charges mill around all evening at a roughhouse gymnasium party, she would get the seniors to lead the freshmen on a pre-Halloween trip through a haunted house. Principal William Soleil, 60, got into the spirit of the thing, thought the kids might get a kick out of finding him hanging in a dark room. One day last week, Mrs. Stevens and her seniors took over an abandoned farmhouse two miles outside town. Scattered paper mache skulls, steer bones, toy rattlesnakes, and other spooky bits and pieces in strategic places. Just before the party, Principal Soleil daubed himself with black grease paint, spattered ketchup on his face and clothes, and suspended himself, a rope strung beneath his arms from the kitchen ceiling. His feet touched a floor littered with broken bottles, burlap sacks, and fire chains. One by one, the seniors led the freshmen through the dark house, amid weird groans and rattling chains. When they came to the kitchen, they briefly flashed a light on the hideous but familiar form that hung limply and moaned softly. All the freshmen agreed that the hanging man was the scariest spook of all. Midway in the fun, Mrs. Stevens slipped into the kitchen with her camera to get a picture. She called to Soleil. There was no answer. She turned on her flashlight. Somehow, as he had moved his feet on the littered floor, Principal Soleil had slipped. The noose had worked up from his armpits to his neck, and he was dead of strangulation. That same year, Los Angeles hairstylist and beauty salon owner Peter Fabiano went to bed with his wife Betty. They assumed that they were finished handing out candy to trick-or-treaters. At 11.30 p.m., the doorbell rang again. Peter got out of bed, grabbed the bowl of candy, and opened the door to find a woman wearing a superhero mask. The woman raised her hand, which was covered in a paper bag, and shot Fabiano in the chest. By the time Betty ran downstairs, her husband was lying dead in a pool of his own blood. The story leading up to the murder was full of tabloid-style lesbian romance that shocked the conservative 1950s world. It featured Betty in an extramarital affair with a woman named Joan Rabble, who'd convinced her new girlfriend, 
Goldine Pizer, to murder Peter Fabiano as an act of revenge for Betty breaking up with her. The murder was fittingly dubbed the trick-or-treat murder. 1963. On October 31, 1963, nearly 4,000 people packed the Indiana State Fairgrounds Coliseum to watch the opening night of the 13-night Holiday on Ice performance. The show started late, but proved to be everything it promised. Some of the biggest names in skating were there, and they entertained the crowd for hours. What no one knew was that liquefied petroleum gas was leaking from a tank stored underneath the grandstands. Shortly after 11 p.m., as the show was coming to an end, the gas came in contact with a heating element near the concession stand. Many sitting in the stands were killed immediately, and debris was thrown across the Coliseum, burying others beneath it. As people began evacuating, a second blast caused by the remaining unexploded tanks caused further death and destruction. The accident led to 81 deaths and left 400 people injured. People and businesses were indicted, but most had their convictions overturned. A total of $4.6 million was paid out to family members of the deceased. The event was one of the first studies done by the Disaster Research Center. The arena reopened six weeks later and still stands today. The Holiday on Ice show returned 13 days later in Grand Rapids, despite the many nervous skaters. 1974. On Halloween night in 1974, after eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien returned from loading up his pillowcase with treats, his father, Ronald, handed him one last piece of candy. It was a pixie stick, one of Timothy's favorites. Little Timothy ate the candy and within minutes began vomiting uncontrollably. On the way to the hospital, he died. Come to find out, Ronald was severely in debt and had recently taken life insurance policies out on his entire family. Timothy was the only one of five kids who'd eaten the cyanide-laced candy, however. A year later, jurors found him guilty of murder. He was executed in 1984 and has since been called the Candyman and the Man Who Killed Halloween, due to great numbers of parents becoming much more vigilant of Halloween candy. 1975. On the evening of October 30, 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley left with neighborhood friends to participate in Mischief Night. The evening was to consist of ringing doorbells and toilet-papering trees that surrounded the massive affluent homes in Greenwich, Connecticut. It ended in murder. Moxley was last seen flirting with her neighbor and good friend Michael Skakel's older brother Thomas in the Skakel's backyard. The next day, Moxley's body was found beneath a tree in her family's backyard, surrounded by pieces of a broken six-iron golf club. She'd been beaten and stabbed repeatedly with the club. The golf club was linked back to the Skakel residence, and Michael specifically, who, if you didn't know, was the nephew of Ethel Skakel Kennedy, the widow of U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Michael Skakel, who was the same age as Moxley at the time, was convicted in 2002 and sentenced to 20 years to life. In 2013, Skakel was granted a new trial by a Connecticut judge and released. In 2016, the Supreme Court voted to reinstate his conviction, but then, in 2018, they changed their mind. On October 30, 2020, exactly 45 years later, they announced that they would not retry Michael Skakel. 1979. 
On Halloween night of 1979, a young woman named Shirley Ledford was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party. Two men inside of a dirty, creepy van offered her a ride. Little did she know that the two men were Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris, a duo who would come to be known as the Toolbox Killers. Bittaker and Norris had begun their kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder spree five months before in Southern California. Ledford was their final victim. Luckily, for countless other girls, a friend of the pair turned them in. As their moniker suggests, the duo typically used items found in a toolbox for their torture sessions. Both Bittaker and Norris died in prison of natural causes in 2019 and 2020. 1981 In the early morning hours of October 31, 1981, Someone entered the home of 39-year-old Ronald Seisman. Seisman was a well-known photographer and was living with his 20-year-old girlfriend, Elizabeth Platzman, at the time. The home was found ransacked, but nothing appeared to be missing. Seisman was shot four times and Platzman three. A typical home invasion burglary gone wrong? Not so fast. According to a prison informant locked up with the Son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz, Berkowitz had talked about the murder well before it happened. He predicted the murder would be carried out by the satanic cult that he belonged to, and that their goal was to recover some footage Seisman had of the cult. No one listened to Berkowitz, and the murders went on exactly how he said they would. He was even able to describe the home perfectly, despite being locked inside New York's Attica Correctional Facility. To this day, the murders remain unsolved. 2010 16-year-old Devin Griffin arrived at his Ohio home on Halloween. He'd been to church that day and spent the previous night at a friend's house. He was looking forward to playing some video games when he stumbled upon what he thought to be his family playing a Halloween prank on him. Griffin found his stepfather, William, in bed and covered in blood. Then he found the bodies of his mother and brother. He exited the home and called his aunt, who then called 911. Eventually, police located Griffin's stepbrother, also named William, in the family's cabin over 100 miles away. William Liskey, known to friends and family as BJ, had beaten his older stepbrother Derek Griffin with a hammer, shot his father five times, and then shot his stepmother. Liskey, who'd had a history of mental illness, including schizophrenia, pleaded guilty to three counts of aggravated murder to avoid the death penalty but was later found dead in his jail cell in 2015. He blamed mental illness and Satan. All right, so all we've proved is that bad things can happen on Halloween. What does that have to do with haunted houses? They're for fun and entertainment, right? Not always. Like Principal Soleil in 1957, sometimes people get more than they bargain for. In October of 1990, 17-year-old Brian Jewell was preparing for his role at the Lakewood, New Jersey haunted hayride that he worked at. His job was to simulate hanging himself with a fake noose. He'd say his lines and then step off the platform and the crowd would gasp. After a couple of full tractors passed by Jewell's section, it dawned on the driver that Jewell wasn't saying his lines. It turns out that the noose, which was designed to never tighten, had choked and killed the young man, and that what dozens of people had witnessed that night was a real hanging corpse. On October 24th of 1997, a woman was walking in front of the Nightmare at Floydville Road haunted house in Connecticut 
when she was hit by a passing automobile. As she lay there dying, passers-by assumed she was part of the show. One man saw her and was unnerved enough that he eventually went and talked to some medical workers nearby. By the time they arrived, she was barely clinging to life and died on the way to the hospital. A number of people reported seeing the woman, but they all figured she was one of the haunted house workers convincingly acting out her part. The man who'd hit her had been drinking at a bar and assumed someone had pulled a prank on him as he'd driven home. In October of 2014, a 16-year-old named Christian Faith went to the Land of Illusion Haunted Scream Park in Middletown, Ohio. While she waited for her father's band to take the stage that evening, she decided to stop into one of the haunted houses. Moments after walking in, she suffered a fatal heart attack. The young girl only had one lung, which put stress on her heart. Fear exacerbated the condition, which caused her death. And finally, I found this 2018 story out of Nashville. A 29-year-old woman named Tanya Greenfield was waiting in line to enter the Nashville Nightmare Haunted House on the evening of October 5th. Her friend, James Yoakum, was teasing Tanya when a man that looked like a character from the haunted house approached. He asked Tanya if James was giving him a hard time. When she jokingly said yes, he handed her what she believed to be a prop knife and said, Well, here, stab him. She thought it would be fun to play along and stabbed her friend in the left arm. When she pulled the knife back, she noticed the blood, the hole in her friend's shirt, and the wound on his arm that was now squirting blood. Yoakum was rushed to the emergency room, and fortunately the knife missed any major arteries. The man who handed Greenfield the knife was never found. If you take anything away from this episode, it might be that Americans find a way to desecrate or alter for our own good nearly every holiday. We've discussed Valentine's Day in the past, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. What they are now is not what they were intended to be. Each holiday is now a reason to get drunk or spend lots of money, or in the case of Halloween, commit crimes. Still, I'm not going to lie, Halloween is my favorite time of the year. Maybe I don't have harvesting crops to contend with or long-dead ancestors to appease, but I certainly have some fake gravestones to set up and scary movies to watch. Be careful out there this Halloween. Maybe don't answer the door if it's much past 8 or 9 o'clock on Halloween. Steer clear of hitchhiking home from the party you're at. If you're working at a haunted house, check and double-check those nooses. And let your parents check your candy. Or don't, if they recently took out a life insurance policy on you. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.